Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Laguna Niguel Stake Living Faith discussion series. For those of you who have not been um, with us for the other uh, discussions that we've had this year, uh, we, have, we have had a number of experts in the field join us at various points throughout the year to help us deepen our Come Follow Me study of church history. Um, each of the discussions has lined up with the era of, of church history that we're studying in Come Follow Me. And tonight, uh, since we are generally in the Kirtland era in Come Follow Me, uh, Brother Bushman will talk about Joseph Smith in Kirtland and then, and then answer uh, questions. Uh, we've collected several from many of you and we'll have opportunity to pose other questions tonight. So I'm going to begin by introducing our speaker, and uh, then I will turn the time over to him to, uh, to speak to us on Joseph Smith and in Kirtland. And then I have, we have collected a number of questions from you that I will then pose to Brother Bushman, and I'll invite follow-up questions or any other questions that you have. Those of you who are on Zoom can pose those through the Q&A function um, uh, in Zoom, and we will, we will take it to that point. Um, Richard Bushman is a professor emeritus of history at Columbia University. Uh, Richard is the author of Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, an important biography of Joseph Smith. He was also an editor for the Joseph Smith Papers Project and now serves on the National Advisory Board. Uh, Brother Bushman has been called one of the most important scholars of American religious history of the 20th century. He served a mission in the Northeast United States, graduated from Harvard University with his undergraduate master's and doctorate degrees. And before teaching at Columbia, he previously taught at Brigham Young University, Harvard University, and a few other appointments. He has served in a number of church callings, including as seminary teacher, bishop, stake president, and stake patriarch. And we just could not be more excited to have you with us tonight, Brother Bushman. Uh, thank you for your time tonight, and I will turn it over to you. Well, thank you, President. It's a great pleasure uh, for me to be here. Uh, Claudia and I spent uh, four very happy years in uh, Southern California, uh, living in Pasadena and teaching at Claremont. And so uh, it's good to make another connection. I uh, understand um, your, your request of me, uh, much as President Evanson uh, described it, as an attempt to explicate uh, Kirtland, which we're now uh, reading about through the revelations uh, given in that, that place. Uh, the saints were there for about seven years, arrived the first missionaries in the very end of 1830, and then Joseph left uh, under a cloud, to say the least, in the early winter of 1838. And there were probably more revelations given in Kirtland by numbering, if you number the revelations, than uh, anywhere else uh, in Joseph Smith's life. So it's a significant um, place. Um, I think it's significant because the events that occurred in church history in that period uh, really teaches lessons about how the Lord works with the church. And they're not always comforting lessons, but I think they're, they're true lessons. And one is that we don't always know exactly what's going to happen next. That we sometimes run into baffling occurrences that are mystifying. What is the Lord doing uh, with us? And uh, 
it reminded me of a statement that uh, President Heber J. Grant once made concerning his leadership of the church. And he says, the Lord, the church is like a train on a track running in the nighttime. He says, there's just enough light shown in the track ahead to know where you're going for the next couple of hundred yards. And beyond that, you're not sure. And that was certainly Joseph's experience in uh, during the, the Kirtland period. He was um, given great commissions and sometimes he was surprised and mystified by why he could not fulfill them the way he wanted to. Tonight, I'd like to talk about <clears throat> three topics related to Kirtland. Uh, one is Zion. Uh, another is uh, the temple. First temple was constructed in Kirtland. And the third is priesthood and, and church government. Uh, Zion, Kirtland is not Zion. Kirtland is a stake of Zion. Uh, Zion is the area in Jackson County around Independence that was designated by the Lord for the site of the new Jerusalem to build a city. One of the striking things about Joseph Smith's uh, a restoration is that he's first told to organize a church, uh, which is quite a thing for a young man with no very little church experience to do. But six months after he's organized the church, he's told he's to build a city the city of Zion, or the, the New Jerusalem, and to establish a Zion society. So he has a double task laid upon him to uh, organize and to populate a church, but also to create a new society. And he's given many re revelations on how to do that. Um, he was uh, told that this was to be a new kind of economy where people would be equal. He's given a plat for the city of Zion, uh, how to lay it out. He's told there's to be a temple there. No other churches were building temples in those days, but he's told that there's to be a temple and that all applied to Zion in Missouri. Kirtland, as I say, is a stake of Zion, where people would be related to the central city, but uh, they were not the center itself, and not all the same laws applied. It's in connection with this creation of Zion that Joseph suffered what was probably the greatest shock and setback of his entire life. He'd gone to to uh, Missouri, he designated a site for the city, laid some logs for where the temple would be, told people to gather, uh, revelations came instructing them how to build property. And that was all in the summer of 1831. Two years later in the summer of 1833, he received word from Oliver Cowdery that the saints were being driven out of Zion. They were bred, forced out of the, of the whole county, had to cross the Missouri River uh, to Clay County and establish a new 
sight for themselves. He was dumbfounded. He could not understand why in the world this place that was sort of the center of his efforts under the command of God should encounter this obstacle. It took him uh, months to be able to get his feet back under him and the revelations began to come. Uh, one of them was that they, there was to be a, a small army of men that were to travel to Zion and attempt to protect the saints to go back in and occupy uh, their property. That's uh, Zion's camp. But uh, they marched as commanded. They got uh, right on the edge of the county, just across the Missouri River from them. But then they were struck by cholera and it decimated the group. Many, some died, many were very, very ill and they had to retreat. So out of the events of 1833 and 1834, uh, he was frustrated in achieving this goal and uh, really didn't know what to make of it. He would have been helped and he may have done this for all I know, if he had read one of his early revelations on Zion, which was received while he was there in August of 1831 uh, to uh, lay the foundations of the city and start people coming. These are the words. I'm gonna read it. It's a little bit long, um, four or five verses, but it gives an idea of what is in the Lord's mind. He says that he's written, this is to the elders of the church. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time, the design of your Lord concerning those things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. Little hint. But after, for after much tribulation comes the blessings Wherefore, the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. Remember this, which I tell you before, that ye may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. Behold, verily I say unto you, for this cause I have sent you, that ye might be obedient and that your hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come, and also that ye might be honored in laying the foundation and in bearing record of the land upon which Zion of God shall stand. I think the Lord is saying, you are laying a foundation, but there's going to be much tribulation yet to come. You're setting a pattern, a goal, but it's not going to be realized immediately. And of course, that's what happened. Zion has become an ideal, the hope, which is still alive in the hearts of Latter-day Saints, that eventually they'll be able to establish a Zion society where people live together in righteousness and peace, and then build a city on these plans. But as the Lord says quite clearly there, it will be some time to come. So that I think is our, our first lesson. We have to look to the long haul. What we think is gonna happen soon may not happen for a while.
We have to be patient. We're laying foundations. The second point I want to talk about are is the temple. Um, the establishment of Zion, as I say, was this major theme. And um, one of the features of this new Zion city, the new Jerusalem, is that it would have a temple in it, maybe more than one temple. So the city plants seems to say there might be more than one. And that brings out a very peculiar feature of early church life. There were no chapels, no meeting houses. Today, we, buy, we build chapels by the thousands. In the early years, the Latter-day Saints never constructed a single chapel, not even in Nauvoo, where there were thousands of saints living there. They met in houses, in stores, in the Masonic Hall. They met in halls. Uh, they met in groves. They met out in the open, but there never was a chapel. As the saints began to gather in Kirtland um, in the uh, uh, early 1830s, uh, as their numbers increased, the brethren came to Joseph and said, shouldn't we build a chapel? I mean, this is what churches do. And a larger, grander plan in mind. And he proposed not just one temple, but two for Kirtland. Uh, one was to be, had to be not just a meeting house, but to house the school of the prophets, which was meeting regularly as part of their uh, education movement. And the other was to house, uh, probably be for meetings too, but was to house the printing house. And so there are these two buildings side by side. They never got to the second building, but they did build the uh, meeting house that was to be both a place where they'd gather for their services and the school of the prophets uh, would meet. Eventually it became clear that this um, temple was to provide another purpose. And that is in the upper rooms, they will receive their endowments, something entirely new. Uh, the temple service as we know it today developed over time. The part that was revealed in Kirtland was just the part that we call initiatories today uh, that was modeled after the passages in Exodus where the, the priests were clothed and washed and anointed. So that part goes on in the endowment house. Um, and that became very important in terms of the church's development and especially the establishment of Zion. Because in the temple, they hoped would be fulfilled a promise that had been given from the early days of the church. And that is an endowment of power. They had in mind various passages in the Bible, but notably the day of Pentecost when the apostles after the departure of Christ received this great flood of the spirit which enveloped them and uh, had a miraculous effect, they spoke in tongues and so on. And that's what gave them the strength to go out and preach the gospel. And if you look at the scriptures 
uh, in these yearly years, uh, quite frequently you'll run onto passages talking about an endowment of power, a gift of power that would be like the uh, gift given to the early disciples in the church. So they were looking for it. And that became relevant to Zion because they began to think that they could, they had not succeeded in recovering Jackson County because they are not yet in doubt. And so in um, 1835 and 1836, brethren from all over the church were asked to gather in Kirtland to begin to attend the School of the Prophets and to receive spiritual outpourings. They happened all through the winter of 1836 and eventually to be present at the temple where they would receive an endowment of power. And they believed that once they would, had received that endowment of power, they would be able to go out and preach the gospel with renewed force like the early uh, disciples. And in some way or another, perhaps by their might as an army, perhaps in some other miraculous way, recover Jackson County. That was their hope and dream and what they, they sought for uh, in the Kirtland Temple. As it worked out, they did receive an endowment of power. Joseph said uh, they actually received a lot of them uh, through that season. But one at the end, he said, we now have received the endowment of power. But it, though Joseph wanted to go back to Zion, events intervened and prevented them from uh, actually recovering that uh, favored site. So once again, they're frustrated, they're forced to delay, <clears throat> but a pattern had been set that the temple is a place where you endow people who need strength. Every missionary who goes out in the field receives his temple endowments or her temple endowments because uh, that is the source of power that permits us to do our work. So that's um, what we have to keep in mind as we think of the temple in relationship uh, to Zion as part of this great campaign. Finally, let me turn to uh, priesthood and church government. Um, <clears throat> it's in Kirtland that the church takes the form that we know today. The basic forms of church government were shaped and brought into existence in Kirtland. Uh, what we don't have that came later are what we used to call auxiliaries. We don't use that so much anymore, but this is a term anymore, but this is the Sunday school, uh, the MIA, the primary. These were all added in Utah during the uh, um, late 19th century, but the formation of the basic governing councils of the church, that all took place in Kirtland. Uh, when the church was organized in 1830, they were given directions, but the model that was available to them of what a church should be like, there were two models. One was the Episcopal model that the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, and the Methodist Church followed of government by bishops. Episcopus means bishop. And uh, 
the hierarchy of vicious bishops reaching up to the Bishop of Rome uh, was where uh, governing authority was located. The other model is the Presbyterian model. Presbyter means elder. And it was uh, elders who would be the pastors of congregations. And then they would gather into conferences where they would confer and make decisions that affected the whole church. And our early church model is elders. The elders were to gather into conferences, much like the Presbyterians did. <clears throat> but as time went along, Joseph began to resort, I don't know, it almost seemed by instinct, probably by uh, Revelation 2, to gather people around him and, and to create informal councils. Many of the early revelations are talked speak of speaking to a gathering of elders uh, or whatever church leaders they have, where Joseph could sort of go through the decisions, the problems they had, and work a, a, out a decision that uh, many people had contributed to. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful instinct to govern wisely in Joseph. Uh, perhaps we have to attribute that to the Lord. But this council, conciliar system began to develop before there was much direct revelation to this effect. But in 1834, this informal system was formalized by the organization of the High Council, which uh, uh, was consisted of 12 men with a presidency and Joseph serving as that group, as the head of that group. Then um, a, a year later, the quorum of the 12 apostles is formed. That had been foreshadowed in earlier revelations where uh, they were talking about the restoration and uh, that included apostles and prophets. And so uh, speak of appointing apostles, but they don't really do it until 1835 when uh, the Quorum of the 12 apostles is formed. So you have two councils, significant councils. There was a danger that these would overlap or conflict or not know their jurisdiction. And the original plan was that the high council would preside over stakes, over Zion itself and over the stakes of Zion that they pictured forming. And that the Quorum of the Twelve would preside over the branches, the little missionary branches and the missionary work uh, outside of, the, of Zion End of this end of the stakes. Uh, that was fairly well uh, delineated, and it prevented conflict and was useful. But gradually, through the Nauvoo period, it became apparent that Joseph's going to allow, uh, going to rely on the Quorum of the Twelve for much more than just taking care of the mission field. He began to consult with them on all sorts of uh, matters involving the whole church. So gradually the Quorum of the Twelve appeared as a superior organization governing the whole church with the high council uh, of the stakes underneath that. Uh, that evolves quite smoothly and quite, quite rapidly. That was uh, of a comment Joseph made to the Quorum of the Twelve 
when he organized them. He said to them, keep minutes of your meetings, keep careful record of your decisions, for they will become doctrine and covenants to the church. Doctrine and covenants is the name of the collection of his revelations. He's now saying the minutes of the Quorum of the Twelve will also be revelatory. They will be doctrine and covenants to the church. And it's quite interesting that after this point, the frequency of revelations that enter into the doctrine and covenants drops off steeply. There are still revelations that come along, but uh, I think what's happening is the administrative revelations about which missionaries to go where at what time and this or that is transferred to the Quorum of the Twelve, which is making these decisions and their minutes serve the place of all these, uh, these other revelations that Joseph received. And the interesting thing to me is the transfer not only of administrative authority, but charismatic power. That is, Joseph is uh, admired and supported and sustained because he spoke for God. He was a prophetic voice. But this Quorum of the Twelve is also told, as is the High Council, that they may seek revelation and speak for God uh, as revela uh, revelators uh, in their decisions. Um, sometimes Joseph Smith is a, uh, accused of being power hungry, that he wanted to grab power and concentrate in himself as sort of an ego trip or whatever uh, motivates people seeking power. But it always, in a way, is the reverse. He was dispersing power. He was telling the quorums that you can govern things. And as we know, that has become the model of the church. Uh, the authority of sort of running things is dispersed. I mean, the Quorum of the Twelve does a lot of it, but also the high councils and the state presidents and then the bishops. And this patterning of having councils at every level, each one of which is re admonished even, to seek revelation uh, is one of the is part of the genius of the church, is that we all feel we're in it. We are the leaders, we are the governors, and we all seek revelation to do that. And I think a man who had um, you know a, a yearning for power would um, not have dispersed it so thoroughly. Of course, at the same time, and this is another miracle how this works. The prophet is still admired and accepted as the spokesman for the Lord, just as Joseph was in those, those early revelations. And somehow we're able both to have concentrated power at the center and a dispersal of authority uh, through to all the members. And in every organization, we don't just have one leader, one pastor who runs things. Everything's done in councils. You don't have just a deacon's quorum president, you have three. You have a bishop brick, a council, uh, a bishop and counselors. So that becomes the standard pattern for the church. And I think is one of the great 
creations of administrative inspiration. It's uh, just uh, truly remarkable how well it works. And that's a product of this Kirtland period. Okay, I'll very quickly go through one um, more uh, uh, theme from this uh, uh, period. And, uh, or let's see, maybe, maybe that uh, sums it up. Yeah, that does sum it up. It's the relationship to Zion, the construction of temples, where the endowment of power is to be given, and then the organization of these councils, which have served us so well, so very well uh, from the beginning until now. So it's really a great period in church history, uh, which is the Lord is shaping through his prophet. Uh, we are the beneficiaries today. We've had many rocky patches like the, de the defeat of Zion uh, in the early days, the death, the assassination of our prophet, the, uh, the departure, uh, the expulsion from the United States, so they have to go west. And even to this day, we have rocky patches. We're going through one of them now, losing so many members because they have questions and doubts and they waver and we lose them. But the church somehow keeps going through it all. We don't get weaker, we get stronger because of all these things and we're sustained. Uh, you almost have to say miraculously. I think Joseph himself would marvel and delight in our numbers, in our strength, in our reach around the globe. So we really have gone a long ways of fulfilling his uh, original vision. So I think the message of Kirtland is hold on, no matter what struggles we have as we go along, uh, the path is ahead, the Lord is on our side, and we will fulfill our destiny. And I bear testimony of that. I'm thrilled to be a part of that organization. And I hardly believe in all the revelations we received. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you, Brother Bushin, for that ter terrific lesson on Kirtland. Um, and as I mentioned at the outset, uh, we have collected questions from members of the stake on Joseph Smith, not just limited to Kirtland, but on, on any topic. And I, uh, we welcome additional questions from anyone on Zoom. Uh, just put those into the Q&A uh, function. But, um, but I've grouped the questions we've received into four buckets. Um, Joseph's character, translation and revelation, plural marriage, and then what I'll call mis miscellaneous. And if it's okay with you, I'll just take them in that order and pose the questions we've received, and then I'll follow up with any we get uh, we get live. All right. Um, first question is: I've I've heard you say that one of the most inspiring traits of Joseph Smith is his resilience, his ability to get back up and try again over and over. Can you explain um, what you mean about that? Well, I, a lot of it appears to, today, but it begins with uh, a young boy, seven years old, who gets an infection in his leg that doctors have to operate on without anesthetic. Huge page, pain, chipping away his infected bone. 
than hobbling around, uh, lying in bed for a long time, hobbling around on crutches for three years from age seven to 10, and still has to get up and take charge. So this is a kid who overcame troubles and then the troubles continue. He's told to translate the Book of Mormon, something, how in the world is he gonna do that? Uh, he manages to do it, loses 116 pages. At the same time he loses the 116 pages, Emma bears a child who dies immediately. And, uh, and the Lord rebukes him despite all of his sufferings. And he has to pick himself up and go on and finish the translation of the Book of Mormon, which he does. And then on to uh, establishment of Zion, we've talked about defeated in that. And of course, at the end, uh, dies, uh, expelled from Missouri along the way. So this is someone who had uh, lots of troubles in life. He's not coddled. He's not necessarily protected. He goes through uh, agonies of life, but he never gave up. And uh, I don't know what innate character he has, but the best answer I have to how he did it was that he had the big picture in mind. He could see he is part of the fact that God would, would help him. And so he carries on despite all, it's quite marvelous. Your book uh, suggests that much of the persecution of the saints and of Joseph had more to do with Joseph's financial and political dealings than it did with religion per se. Can you comment on that? Yeah, um, there are two things, political and economic. The political, in a way, has to do with religion. What people really worried about was the gathering. If there had been a tiny little group of Mormons uh, in a tiny little congregation in any city of the United States, they would might have been ridiculed, but they would have not have been driven out. But when they gather and threaten to become the majority of the state, of the a county or a city, and threaten to be able to control elections so the justices of the peace and the sheriff and, and the mayors would all be Latter-day Saints, that terrified people. And so they're, uh, they're driven out under those circumstances. So um, uh, that in, in a way is religious, but it's not any specific doctrine. It's just that we were strange. It was that they didn't want fanatics uh, running the government. So they caused us some problems. And then we were a bit arrogant. You know, we claimed this is our land. We weren't tactful. And so uh, that annoyed people. Uh, you were discussing Kirtland, and many left the church in Kirtland, um, considering Joseph a fallen prophet. Can you talk about some of the reasons they left and any lessons to be learned from the apostasy of that era? Yeah, that goes back to the second half of your question about the economy. Uh, uh, Joseph Smith was not circumspect financially. Um, he was energetic. He tried all sorts of schemes to try and make money, but his his uh, 
his needs always exceeded his means. And he never let the lack of funds stop him from doing what needs to be done. If you've got to buy land in Jackson County, buy it. If you need to buy land in Nauvoo, buy it. If you need to build a temple far beyond your regular means, do it anyway. And this meant he was constantly in debt. We now estimate that he was involved in around 200 suits in one court or another, most of which were debt suits uh, for recovery of what was owed people. But uh, he just kept doing it. And it's uh, he's harassed by his creditors in all sorts of ways, by mail and by trying to arrest him and so on. But he just kept going on despite all. And uh, I think he would be thrilled that this record of lacking the means to accomplish what needed to be done has now come to an end. The church now has means. We can build the temples we need. We can send out missionaries. We, through the care and good stewardship of church leaders for the last century, are now financially secure. And this would be a huge relief to Joseph, who never in his whole life was financially secure. Thank you. Um, I, I think, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, of course, what gets him in trouble is he starts a bank trying to get some capital to pay for his temple and all the other developments he wants. And he doesn't know how to, uh, to manage a bank. He gets into all sorts of problems. And uh, a lot of people are hurt badly by uh, trusting those notes. And that's one of the main reasons that people turned against him with, from within the church and sent him packing to uh, Missouri. Uh, the second bucket of questions is translation and revelation. Um, did, did Joseph Smith describe how he received visions and revelations? Did he hear and repeat dictation? Did he describe a scene he saw and liken it to something we can understand? What did he say about that? He said very little about that. He said, uh, I translated the, the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. And that's virtually all he said, uh, using the, the interpreters. Uh, and today there is a, there, there's been a debate about the translation, of course, from the beginning. But today, church members, faithful church members who truly believe God was behind it and the book is true, don't understand it. And there's a very lively uh, view. One is that he could look in the interpreters and see what the Book of Mormon was, he could just sort of read it off. And there are others who say he received deep impressions, and then he formed these impressions into his own words. So in one, it's tightly controlled, and in the other, his own mind is active. And there's evidence on both sides. And right now, there's just there's no agreement on how it could be done. The revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants were received in public. He would have people around him. He would dictate him. Section 88 is interesting because he was dictating the revelation and got late. He says, well, uh, it's uh, time to go home now. Uh, we'll start again. And the next morning they came back and, and he started revealing 
the remainder of the revelation. So it was almost as if he turned it off and turned it on according to circumstances. But uh, those words just flowed. It's just amazing how they, uh, they came from his mouth. Um, what do you make of Joseph's early fascination with um, magic and treasure hunting? And how do you think that impacted the way that he ultimately came to translate texts? Uh, yeah, his family, like many people in the neighborhood, were uh, thought that there were buried treasures around and that if they could go out and had the right devices and the right uh, spells, that they could obtain this treasure. And Joseph, early in his life, had found a seer stone, uh, which helped him to find lost objects. So his father pressed him into service to go out and search for treasure, which he did quite a bit, uh, going a long way down to uh, southern New York to uh, hunt for treasures uh, there. Um, and for many years, this was considered shameful. People thought, uh, well, he's, he's just superstitious. He does crazy things. And the church is just one more crazy thing. Nowadays, uh, we're beginning to think differently about that, that that belief that there could be glorious things discovered in the earth and that uh, you could be led to them by a guardian spirit or an angel really prepared Joseph to do something that was totally unprecedented in human history, so far as we know, uh, in discovering plates and translating them to create a, a scripture. Uh, that was almost impossible to believe. But the fact that there were some resemblances between finding a treasure in the earth and having a, a supernatural being guide you or show you the way sort of was the first step. And it took Joseph a little while to get straightened out. He tells us when he was going to the hill, he started thinking about, well, there's a treasure there. And he was split between a record and a treasure. And when he finally gets there, he decides it's a treasure he's there for. And he um, tries to pull it out of the ground thinking, ah, oh, I now have something glorious. And he's uh, struck down and the, uh, the plates are taken from him. And the angel says, no, that's not, this is something different. So he learned um, fairly soon that he was on another track. It took his father longer uh, to, uh, to separate the two. But eventually by 1827, when he gets the plates, most of the family, and Joseph himself understood this was not a treasure like the treasure seekers sought. This was a whole. Up in the family and in his own mind, uh, so he could uh, do proper justice to the gold plates. Uh, we talk about Joseph translating the Book of Mormon, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and the Book of Abraham. Um, but how was his approach to translating translating these texts the same, and how did they differ? Um, well, um, the Book of Mormon begins with an object, the gold plates. 
and another object, the interpreters. And between the two of them, somehow he's able to put the words together. Uh, as I say, we don't know that process, but that's, that's the structure. The Book of Moses, the only object was the Bible. He's beginning to, to he's told he's to retranslate the Bible or to augment it in some way. Seems like a strange assignment, but it's given to him. And only it inspires the Book of Moses, which is intended as a prelude to Genesis 1, the creation of the earth. That's how, how it works. Um, so it we think of as more as just a, a direct revelation. There's uh, there's no objects to no translation. Uh, the book of Abraham goes back to the manuscript version. He finds this text. Uh, we don't know exactly what was on it. There's a big debate about it. Uh, Joseph feels it has something to do with <coughs> Abraham, <clears throat> and then the inspiration comes to him. This. These are the writings of Abraham and Joseph. And he proceeds to translate them um, and to produce this text that we call uh, the Book of Abraham. Again, we don't know how it worked. Uh, there doesn't, for what we have of the remaining text and what we have in the Book of Abraham, don't really correspond according to scholars. They read the text we have and they say, this is not Book of Abraham at all. This is a breathing permit given to a Pharaoh who was uh, being buried. Um, we see the Book of Abraham and some LDS scholars uh, think it's, it's, it's there. But we, what we do know is that it's a stimulus for him, a catalyst to uh, dictate uh, the Book of Abraham. He always yearned to be able to understand the languages. He was interested in languages. And they made an effort in Kirtland to try to see if they could learn Egyptian. It didn't get very far, but it was their effort. Joseph himself, though, didn't learn Egyptian. Uh, that would not have been possible for him to, in order to translate. He received that uh, as he did the Book of Mormon by, by revelation. Um, next topic is plural marriage. Um, and the first question for plural marriage is why was there so much secrecy surrounding polygamy in the early days of the church? Well, I, Joseph uh, knew it was a scandalous practice that it could not be accepted. His own people uh, could not accept it. His own wife could not accept it. It was dynamite. And, uh, it was very hard for him. Joseph was uh, thought of the Lord as a friend. He was also afraid of the Lord. And when he was given a revelation, he tended to do it instantly. He didn't want to be caught off base. But he received the plural marriage revelation probably in 1831. That seems to be the consensus. He didn't practice it. He tried with Fanny Alger in 1835. It didn't work out, it fell apart, and he just kept putting it off. Finally, in 1841, um, there's some kind of uh, some kind of demand from God that he do it, and so he started to practice it. But he was uneasy about it. He knew 
Ammo would be uneasy about it. He knew the saints would have trouble understanding. He knew it would bring down persecution. So he concealed it. And there's a lot of deception that goes on. Uh, technically, he wasn't exactly lying, but the intent was to cover up uh, what he, he was doing. So it's a very hard passage for us. And, uh, but it was even harder for Joseph uh, to get this uh, installed and going. And I'm not sure it could have worked if they'd stayed in Nauvoo. There had been so much opposition in the neighborhood, so many lawsuits. It, they really had to go to Utah where they controlled the government uh, to get it, get it going. It's a tough passage in our history. Um, well, this next one is a tough, tough question <laughs> and a tall order. Um, the question is, uh, please help me be okay with the fact that Joseph Smith married a 14-year-old? Well, I don't think that's quite as tough as you might think. You know, it looks like an older predator using his position in society to intimidate uh, a young girl and make her part of his harem. But it was quite different than that. Um, the girl in question is a woman named uh, Helen Marr Kimball. And she was Heber Kimball's daughter. And it wasn't Joseph that went to her and um, appealed to her to become his wife. It was her father, Heber Kimball, who went to Joseph and pled with him to take his daughter as a wife. The reason was that when polygamy was taught, uh, those who were asked to get involved were told that they were being linked into a priesthood chain that would unite all the people of the earth and that they would be immensely blessed if they would be part of the prophet's family. And this would be true for others, so like Brigham Young or even uh, people like Hebrew Kimball. They're trying to form these chains of, of, uh, of family. And so Heber wanted to be part of Joseph's family. So he went to Joseph and pled with him to take his daughter. His daughter was furious, not with Joseph, but with her father, who uh, had put her in this position. She was deprived of her youth. It meant that you know she couldn't enjoy going to dances anymore because she was a married woman. It was a very hard thing for her. And it took her a long time to forgive her father. Eventually she did, became, she married uh, others after Joseph Smith. Uh, death, a man named Whitney, um, and uh, she became eventually a defender of plural marriage, but at the time it was very, very hard on her. Uh, when she, after they were married, she went home, she continued to live with her family. As uh, so far as we can tell, there were no sexual relations involved in it. Uh, in fact, there's no evidence, there were very strong evidence that there were sexual relations in these plural marriages, but uh, uh, it, it was not what it looks like. It wasn't a predator uh, trying to uh, uh, prey upon uh, an innocent young girl. It was a prophet trying to reassure uh, one of his closest followers uh, that his family would be linked to Joseph's and be correspondingly blessed. Um. Another plural marriage question. How do you deal with the fact that Joseph was sealed to women who already had living husbands? 
yeah, that's one of the hardest ones. And uh, one of the revelations that was coming about just as I was writing uh, Rough Stone Rolling and people told me this is gonna be one of your hardest and it is uh, one of the hardest. But the answer goes back to um, what I said before about this effort to link people together into a great family uh, chains. In those days, they did not know about sealing up your own line. They didn't think that uh, uh, grandparents could be sealed to great grandparents or husbands and wives because they thought you had to be a member of the church before you could go through these temple sealings. So it's not till 1896 <clears throat> that we begin the practice of sealing up through lines. So the way of forming this family, which seems to have been an elemental part of Joseph's vision of the earth, one great family, um, was to do it laterally, that is to seal people uh, to people on this earth. And so marriage is part of it, but adoption of children to parents was even more uh, common. All, you know, I, I don't know the number, but it's scores and scores of people were were sealed to Joseph Smith as, as his adopted children. And that occurred after he died as well. So it's uh, their effort to create the big family of, of uh, humanity. Uh, that, so after 1896 and after then plural marriage in 1890, then the, they begin to see a different vision of things through Wilfred Woodruff. And that's when we went to our our current uh, temple system of sealing families back through time. Um, final bucket of questions, uh, just general questions on a number of different topics. Uh, first is about Zion's camp. What did Zion's camp teach the men and women who lived through it um, and lessons that we can take away from, from their experience? Well, as I was, you know, I said earlier, uh, it's a, a great campaign. They were very brave to go to pick up um, and just leave their families and their farms and go off to, on this effort. And then they're defeated. Not only are they militarily unable to get into Jackson County, they suffer the cholera. So it was uh, uh, a lesson, I think, in patience. Uh, that they had to learn that God will work in his own time and we have to do our parts. But I think they also, they came back and instead of being um, disillusioned with Joseph and feeling angry at him for taking them on this wild goose chase, they were more loyal to him than ever. And I think it's the old story, if you sacrifice for something, it bonds you even if you don't accomplish exactly what you want to do. So it formed a sort of a core of people that were ever after quite loyal uh, to Joseph and he chose many of his leaders uh, from that, that group. So it served its purposes in a way that he had not intended, but proved to be very important as the years went by. Um whom would you say that Joseph trusted the most um, among his 
closest friends and family members. Yeah, you sent that question to me earlier and you named uh, Hiram, uh, Lucy Smith and uh, Emma. Uh, Joseph had a, you know, a warm relationship with his mother, but um, he didn't really turn to her for comfort and guidance. Uh, he didn't tell her about the first vision. When he comes into the house, she, after the first vision, she says, what's the matter? And he says, never mind, I'm well enough off. I've learned from myself that Presbyterianism is not true. When she went off the Presbyterian church, he didn't go with her as some of the other kids did. He stayed home with his father. So um, she, he was not the person he just automatically turned to. Hiram had really taken care of him when he was ill and carried him around the house when he had his, his leg infection and was sort of a sobering, calm person. Joseph was uh, full of emotion and fire and energy. Uh, Hiram was more, much more cautious. So they helped, uh, helped him that way. But the person Joseph confided in above all was Emma. He told her all the things he was, he was worrying about. And his letters to her are filled with plaintive pleas and confessions of his struggles. I think they talked about everything. That's why polygamy was such a tragic event in their lives, because their, their marriage had been so close before then. And then he, he couldn't bear to tell her there was some deception there. Eventually told her and she was, couldn't bear it. So it, it divided them. Uh, at least temporarily, but I think uh, I think he still depended upon her and trusted her uh, more than anyone else around him. Um, why um, why do you think people are hesitant to read Rough Stone Rolling? Well, we've been going through a very difficult time. Uh, in church history. I think we're going to survive it, and I think we will um, be stronger for it. But we had one view of church history that was taught in our Sunday schools everywhere. It was the truth that had one problem. It refused to take into account the stories that enemies of the church told. It was assumed everything that came from the enemy was totally untrustworthy. They would make up facts. There were all sorts of things that were simply erroneous. So that left us free to tell us the history of the church that was based on friendly accounts, people who were close to the prophet. And it was a pretty good story and largely true. But eventually, as we developed a core of professional historians, uh, after World War II, who uh, had to write about uh, history in a way that would sell to their professors and to their fellow scholars, they began to reevaluate all this uh, unfriendly uh, evidence and realized that though some of it's exaggerated and had its flaws, a large part of it was true, such as the treasure-seeking accusations. Everybody said they were treasure-seekers. We denied it. For a long time, but eventually it became evident they they were. So that and lots of other things, uh, Seer Stones, Book of Abraham, all sorts of other things, 
have had to be assimilated. We have to say, how does our story look if we accept these facts that we now realize were facts? And that's been hard. It's been hard on general authorities. There were a number of them who for years just would not accept what their historians were saying. In my own book, uh, there were lots of people who, who couldn't accept it, even though I'd done my best to really base it on the right kind of, of evidence. Uh, and so there's this disjuncture. And here I'm a faithful church member. I believe everything about it. And I write a book that members of the church are unable to bear. It, I've had people tell me I read 50 pages and threw it down. I just couldn't bear it. So there's this shock of recognition of these uh, new factual material. And that's caused strains, it's caused people to leave the church, it's caused debates and so on. Um, so that's sad, but it's a necessary transition because so long as we're not based on fully honest scholarship, we're, we're building on the sand. We've got to make sure that we are committed to what really is there, what's factual and adjust to it. And I think we're doing it. Uh, the New Saints volume incorporates all this new information The Joseph Smith papers have a lot of it uh, in it, all of it in it. And so we're on the way. And I think the next generation will be much more secure in their knowledge of the, of the church because of what's being done now. Uh, we, we got a, a question on the on the Zoom going back to plural marriage. Um, I've heard conflicting statements on whether or not Joseph fathered any children with any of his plural wives. Is there any concrete evidence one way or the other? Uh, there, um, there's concrete evidence on both sides. There's um, sort of literary evidence that is stories people told, and there's scientific evidence. The literary evidence uh, is of some people saying in the 1860s that definitely they lived with Joseph Smith, there was full conjugal relations and so on. Uh, the reason this evidence came forth was because the latter the reorganized church, which had been organized by the 1860s was sending missionaries to Utah saying Joseph never had full marital relations with any of his wives. So Brigham Young brings out all these women who'd known him to say they did um, and to sort of uh, counter what the reorganized uh, missionaries were saying. So uh, there's some evidence there, not complete evidence, but enough to think it's quite possible. There must have been some. But when we go to the people who later said, I was told I was a descendant of Joseph Smith, that he was my father. And we take all the stories that were told. And then in the very uh, uh, clever ways that uh, geneticists do, test their DNA, both males and females, we find there's no DNA evidence of any offspring. So I myself am uncertain. I think it's possible there were sexual relations, but so many of the marriages were not for the purposes of having children. That happens in Utah. In Joseph's time, the chief purpose was the, the covenant sealing that would join these families and forming domestic polygamy where you were 
take care of people and have children by them and have a family life, uh, that comes along later. So I, I think it's quite possible that there was no sexual relations at all uh, between Joseph and his uh, many wives. Um, what would you say to those who claim that the church deliberately hid controversial information about Joseph Smith? Well, they deliberately lid, did in a way, but it wasn't because they knew all of this truth that they had to conceal because it was negative. It's because they believed it. They believed that all these uh, bad parts of the story were the were the concoctions of our enemies. They were trying to, the, the leaders of the church and the church historians like Joseph Fielding Smith were telling what they actually believed was the truth. So they were denying and in a way covering up uncomfortable truths, but it wasn't because they wanted to hide things from people. It was because they thought their story, the, the sort of the, the sweet story was the, the true story. Now the church leaders have realized that they have to accept the work of their historians and the Joseph Smith papers, which are totally transparent on all the problems, nothing is hidden there, all the evidence is brought out. Those are all approved by the top leaders of the church. They're read by the first presidency. So that has become the new standard of, of truth. There's no concealment. Um, and, and this is a good uh, last question for you. Uh, also, just came in over the Zoom. In, in your book, you bravely reveal many of Joseph's shortcomings and mistakes. How have you been able to maintain your personal testimony when the recountings in your book have contributed to others losing their testimony? Well, it's um, I, I, that's a mystery. Why do some people know things and other people? People know the same things and they react quite differently. I do not know the answer to that, that question because the people who know most about Joseph Smith are our own church historians and they have 90% uh, of them have remained faithful in the church while other people um, are disrupted. So I don't really uh, know the answer. Partly is because I sort of learned it little by little uh, and sort of assimilated it and all, it all seemed... Uh, uh, sensible after a while. And so much of it's just a matter of getting getting accustomed to it. That's why I think the next generation will be, if they're brought up to, to know all these things, they won't, they won't be disturbed them. The thing that disturbed me most was Joseph Smith's temper. I don't know what flaws you're thinking of, but uh, I was surprised to learn that he really got cross with people. And, he, you know, he would kick them out of his house. There was he would slap them. Uh, he would say things. Uh, he just did not like to be crossed. And I thought, well, I don't, uh, maybe he's a prophet, but I'm not sure I'd like to know a person like that. But I began to see it a little differently because uh, I may have said something like this earlier, but I'll say it again. Um, he not only was let his anger show, he also let his love show. When people would come to him and seek reconciliation, he'd forgive them immediately. He'd welcome them back. And when he would talk to the saints, he would just flow with love for his people, his concern for the, their well-being. 
And I realized what we have in Joseph Smith is a charismatic personality. That is a person whose emotions are on the surface. If he got angry with you, you knew about it. There was no deception. He just would come at you. But then if he felt love for you, he would envelop you in, in that love. And that's, that's the kind of person that can be a little hard to live with, but it's a very uh, in, uh, compelling person. It has a magnetic power to it and enabled him to actually dominate anybody who came to see him. Didn't matter if they were a president of the United States or a senator or the mayor of Boston or whatever. Uh, he always was in command because of this emotional power that he had. And the temper, I think, is just one aspect of that personality structure. Well, I, I want to thank you, Brother Bushman, for um, for being with us tonight and also for your life's work on the prophet and for all that you've taught us. That was a wonderful, um, wonderful discussion. And and I, I want to close with just a brief um, story. One of my a few claims to fame is that I was a member of Brother Bushman's New York City Ward in 2005 when Rough Stone Rolling was published. And I was about halfway through law school and, um, and I didn't know Richard very well. I remember him teaching our elders quorum, which at the time I did not appreciate. <laughs> um, but I, I could tell enough that he was kind and faithful. So I was excited to, uh, to read your book. Um, but I did not get very far into rough stone rolling before I realized that it was a, a different version of the story than I'd been taught as a child. Um, it was a much more complex story and sort of like the, like the people you mentioned uh, that read 50 pages and throw it down. I, I, I didn't like the Joseph that I was learning about. And so I stopped reading it. Um, I had a firm testimony of the book of Mormon and my, uneasiness over, over what I was learning about Joseph never turned to serious doubts or a faith crisis or anything. And I was, I, I continued to be obedient. I raised a family, continued to serve. Um, but for several years, I put my questions about Joseph Smith uh, on the shelf, as they say. And that was, that was okay for me. Uh, fast forward about nine years to 2014, and I was serving as a young bishop and the church published the gospel topics essay on plural marriage, uh, which prompted the New York Times to write a front page article on Joseph Smith and polygamy. And that Sunday, a recently baptized member of our ward came barreling into my office at the church, and he was furious. He read me the riot act about Joseph Smith, uh, plural marriage, and, and several other things. And I felt completely inadequate sitting there listening to this good brother express his anger. And as he spoke, I had the distinct impression that I needed to push through this complexity that I had stumbled into nine years earlier, but hadn't made any progress on. So I pulled out uh, your book again, and uh, this time I read it cover to cover. And this time I absolutely loved it. And as I finished the book, I loved Joseph. Um, I was no longer weirded out by his treasure hunting. Um, I recognized instead that God was preparing him to be able to do the work of translation with the tools and culture of the time. 
and Joseph's mismanagement in Kirtland and Missouri, I saw a young church leader who was doing his best to build the kingdom and learning from his mistakes, just like I was as a young and inexperienced bishop. And even with plural marriage, I, I gained an empathy for Joseph, caught between, as you described, between the love of his life and a gut-wrenching commandment uh, he received from an angel with a drawn sword. Um, I, I approached my second attempt at studying Joseph's life with a different heart than I had the first time. And for me, that made all the difference. I was wading through the complex history with purpose. I began my study with prayer and I listened as the spirit softened my heart and helped me recognize the hand of the Lord in Joseph's life. Um, and I loved Rough Stone Rolling so much that as soon as I finished it, I started over and read it again. And uh, for the next five years, I read every book I could find on Joseph Smith. And I, I share that story not as a blueprint or a checklist for anyone. Um, for instance, I would suggest you start with saints rather than rough stone rolling. <laughs> I hope that doesn't offend you, Richard. Um, um, I share that story simply as an example of what I think it looks like to wrestle with the complicated history of the restored church. It requires patience, faith, and forgiveness of people who were doing their best to be obedient and to build the kingdom in incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, my firm belief is that whether we ultimately have faith in Joseph Smith and the restoration um, is not solely a result of what we read, uh, but of the heart with which we read it that our desires, our patience, and our ability to forgive and seek understanding is what will either build or weaken our testimonies of the restoration of the gospel. And I want to close with my testimony um, that Joseph Smith was the prophet of the restoration, that the Lord called on the most humble and imperfect person imaginable to do his most important work, and that the character flaws and mistakes and challenges of Joseph's life are, um, have been incredibly strengthening to me as I make many of the same mistakes and, and suffer the same challenges. And um, I have lots of questions for Joseph when I get to meet him someday, but uh, I mostly just want to give him a big hug and thank him for his tremendous sacrifice and for all the blessings in my life uh, because of who he was and what he accomplished. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.